We have made ourselves to be his foes, yet he speaks to us as his friends. We have acted like we don't even know him, and yet he calls us his children. And when our relationship with our Heavenly Father was, was stretched to its max, our Father promised that he would send his Son to stretch out his arms and to die on the cross, to crush the head of the mortal enemy whom we could never defeat, to save us, to forgive us, and to draw us back into his healing embrace. You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast for Bethany Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California. Well, as I said, I'm taking a, a good chunk of this message from, uh, from the book that I uh, had a little bit ago. Uh, and I want to begin with a very obvious statement. Uh, back when I was in college, if we said something super obvious, my buddies would say, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. And this is one of those thank you, Captain Obvious kinds of statements. We all enjoy having healthy and happy relationships, right? That is an obvious statement, an obvious question. Husbands and wives desire to have a very strong relationship with each other. Friends want to get along with one another, and of course, parents desire to be close to their children. And when these relationships are at their best, that's when we enjoy the relationships and life itself the most, right? And as long as things are going very well in our lives, the deeper characteristics of these relationships usually remains unseen beneath the surface. But when something tests the relationship, that's when we begin to see how strong the relationship really is. Most everyone, for example, has had those fair-weather friends, people who, who disappear from our lives as soon as they realize that well, they're not going to get anything from us anymore. And sadly, when marriages are stressed by financial struggles or health issues or whatever else, some spouses simply throw in the towel and walk away. How we respond to the strains and stresses of relationships in our life is a window to our commitment, our commitment to the relationship itself and our commitment to the other in the relationship. And you might think that nothing reveals more about just how frail the relationship can be when one person simply can't offer anything to the relationship and indeed the other one walks away. But there's something that actually reveals even more fragility in our relationships when one person actually doesn't offer nothing but offers something harmful when the person deserves not love but anger, when the other person deserves not blessing but punishment, when the other person has wronged us, misused us, and trampled our relationship underfoot. That's when the world would back us in our desire to simply walk away from the relationship, to indeed throw in the towel and leave the other person in their own guilt and shame. In other words, when our friends turn into our foes, when our spouses betray us, that's when our relationship is stretched out to the max. And in those situations, it's easy to conclude, isn't it, that some betrayals are just too much for us. We see no other option but to end the relationship. And it's not just human relationships that struggle with that, right? God's relationship with us, his children, was also stretched to the max. Think back to Genesis chapter 2. We read Genesis chapter 3 this morning, but think back to Genesis chapter 2. We were in Eden. There was no good gift that the Father had withheld from us. We had his love. We had each other. We had a pristine world. We were, in fact, living in paradise, literally. 
Yet we came to believe somehow that God was withholding something from us, that in fact he was by nature stingy, not good. Satan had convinced us that what God had told us was poison was actually pretty. So we abused his love by acting as if he were the one that were self-serving. And then in fact, he was, like I said, stingy. My friends, we were living in a mansion that was made of gold, but we just had to get our hands on that dirty little copper penny that we thought God was withholding from us. And, and when we did, when we grabbed that penny, when we ate the forbidden fruit, we were like, well, immediately tasting our own shame and death and accusation. It was indeed poison as promised. And the only looming question at that point was, well, how would God react to all of this? We had wronged him. We had misused his gifts. We had trampled his love under our feet. And we deserve nothing but his punishment. Even by our own standards, we've already agreed to that. He, he could have rained down fire and brimstone into Eden. He could have screamed and stomped his feet and yelled and walked away. He could have simply looked at us in shame and shaken his head and thrown in the towel. But what he chose to do instead reveals just about everything there is to know about God, about his love for us, about his unbreakable commitment to us, and about his generosity. The first word then he does say to us is a question. He says, where are you? And in that simple question, we find a world of hope. In asking that question, God isn't sort of inviting us to, to participate in some kind of game of hide and seek. No, he's inviting us to return to him. He knows exactly where we are and he knows exactly what has happened. He knows that we have rebelled and trampled his love underfoot. He knows that we has, have broken his command. But knowing all of this only makes him want us to return to him even more. He doesn't want us to be living in shame and death. He wants to restore this relationship to us, even if we don't. So he beckons us out of hiding, back to himself, with repentance in our hearts and on our lips, for sure. At this point, though, going back to the story, Adam and Eve are still focused on their own sin. Adam admits that he's afraid of God. He and his wife feel the pressure of their own guilt, and they begin to play the blame game, don't they? Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of that fruit and I ate it. He shifts the blame. He throws her under the bus, but he tries to blame God too. The woman you gave me, he says. And Eve, not wanting to be the only one under the bus, she does the same thing. The serpent gave me the fruit and I ate it. This kind of response is typical of us too when we are initially confronted with our own sin. We're sorry but not so much because we did something wrong, but because we got caught. We know that, and we are afraid of the consequences. And as we feel that burden of guilt and fear, as we feel that building, we too make excuses. We too start pointing fingers, and we too try to start to claim some kind of extenuating circumstances for ourselves. And once more, however, our Father reveals his true generous heart to us, Yes, he goes on to tell Adam and Eve and the rest of us that the realities of this earthly life have changed because of sin. 
Eve will have terrible pain and childbearing. Adam will have to work his fingers to the bone as he farms the land. There will be pain and sickness and suffering and death. This is what sin does. It spoils paradise because it is indeed poison as promised. But more importantly, our Father then also speaks a word of light into all of this darkness. He foretells of hope and healing and indeed restoration. He promised that he would send the, the seed, the offspring of Eden, and that seed would crush the skull of the serpent. And humanity's enemy in that moment will be destroyed. Yes, though this destruction God promises will also mean death for the seed, for the promised one would die as well. The fangs of Satan indeed will penetrate the heel of the promised one, and he too will die even as Adam and Eve have died. Yet in this death will be victory over death, victory over the grave, for he too will be destroying death by his own death. He will bury the grave, and he will rise to new life. And what is almost as remarkable as this promise is the context into which God has spoken it. All the labor that God performed to, to craft this masterpiece of creation, we've ruined this. All the love that the Father has exhibited in making us even, breathing his own breath of life into us, making us in his image, making us to be perfect partners for one another, man and woman. All of this we too have trashed, and the relationship that our Lord has established with us, we've severed that too. And even when confronted with our own sin, we've begun again to point accusatory fingers at others, and sometimes even God himself. Yet despite all of this, and in fact in full knowledge of all of this, our Father still seeks us out. He bids us back to him, and he tells us that he's willing to send his son to die in our place. That, my friends, is the extent of God's generosity, and sometimes we know all this, but we have to pause and think about it because it's greater than we can even imagine. We have made ourselves to be his foes, yet he speaks to us as his friends. We have acted like we don't even know him, and yet he calls us his children. And when our relationship with our Heavenly Father was, was stretched to its max, our Father promised that he would send his Son to stretch out his arms and to die on the cross, to crush the head of the mortal enemy whom we could never defeat, to save us, to forgive us, and to draw us back into his healing embrace. And despite all of this loving and amazing care, sadly, sin still lingers in our lives, doesn't it? Satan still prowls around. We might think that we can resolve this remaining problem by reminding ourselves of the commands that God gives us and, and, and those pithy sayings that tell us how to be better people, how to be more charitable, more obedient, and more generous ourselves. And while indeed it is appropriate to look at God's commands and to grow in his faith and to persevere in this life, to walk the walk of a disciple, and yes, it is even God's desire that we would become more generous when we contemplate his generosity. All of the commands that we can read and all of those pithy sayings, they don't bring us the change that we really need. In fact, they always and eventually point back the finger at us, accusing us once again that we've fallen short. 
What we need is not all those commands and pithy sayings. We need our loving and our giving and our generous God. That's what we need, who made amends for our wrongdoing. We need that stand-in. We need someone who says, I've got this covered. We need the head crusher. In fact, finally, in faith, we have that. Through our faith in his act of sacrifice, we are filled with a love that keeps no record of wrongs. We are filled with a love that makes no demands. We are filled with a love that gives and gives and gives some more. And I'm going to go off, off text here, off my script here a little bit, and remind us as I sit here thinking in this morning's service of just how much God has given us here in this community called Bethany Lutheran Church. We have this beautiful facility. We have some amazing music ministries. We have so many gifts, the gifts of each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our God keeps giving and giving and giving. And all of this is what we have in the seed that was promised to Adam and Eve, the seed who was the son of Mary and the son of God. That's the generosity of God. Remember this, though, Jesus Christ did not come down from heaven to transform us into generous people. No, he was not conceived in the Virgin Mary to conceive within us a generous heart. He did not pour out his lifeblood so that we might pour out our wallet into the offering plate. His purpose was not to make us better people by any means, better givers and better servants. He came not to condemn us, but to transform us. In fact, he came to be transformed. He was transformed into our sin so that we might be declared the righteousness of God. We learn that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who had no sin was made to be sin so that in him and in faith in him we might become the righteousness of God. So no, God does not show us love because he can get something out of us. He's not that kind of fair-weather friend. He created us so that he might have children in, our, in, in whom he can shower all of his gifts. And he redeemed us for the same reason, that we might be flooded with his forgiveness, washed away of all of our sins. He gave us his spirit and he did that to declare us to be his saints. Now, of course, this truth does not tell us to embrace our sin so that this gift can increase. We know that. But this truth is telling us that apart from him, all we have to offer is our sin. And he takes those sins and he takes them away in the sacrificial death of his son. My friends, I'll say it again, we have nothing good to offer God, yet he gives us everything, including himself. Indeed, so generous has God been toward us that we may have gained more in Jesus Christ than we even lost in Adam. Think about this for a little bit. In our our first father, we had his original righteousness, but in Christ... In Christ, we have received the righteousness of God himself. In Adam, we were created in the image of God, but in Christ, we are recreated in the very image of God who took our image. No greater, no more intimate union is possible than the union and the relationship that we have with our Father through Jesus Christ. This relationship we broke, God restored, and in his generosity and love, he gave us his Son, And so Romans 8 reminds us that God gave up his son for us, and so he will graciously give us all things. Our God, my friend, is a generous God indeed. 
And fortunately, the love that the Father gives us is not proportional to the love that we have for Him. His giving, His generosity are not reciprocal to our giving. It doesn't work that way. He doesn't look for someone in the word in the world who is worthy of his love. He doesn't even look for us because he knows we're not worthy. He looks for us because he loves us. What he gives us is not an investment, but it is a gift. It's a no-strings-attached kind of gift, pure charity. We are beggars with open palms, and Lord, the Lord places his love into our hands, and it overflows and overflows and overflows. The offering plate we have back there is way too small for God's gift to us. And his generosity to us is not a tithe, it's not percent, 10% of everything he has. No, his gift is as large as he is. His gift is himself. And he doesn't fill an offering plate for us, but he does fill our hearts. And he did fill the cross. And he did fill the tomb for a while too, but now that's empty. And he did that so he could fill our hearts with his righteousness and his love. And now all of this overflows out of our lives. All of this generous giving that he has, all this charity, all of his generosity, it overflows out of our lives. So through us then, his generosity can indeed overflow out of our hearts, out of our hands, and out of our lips into the world. There is indeed a never-ending supply of it for us and for the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening today. A video archive of our online worship services, including today's message, can be found on our YouTube channel and at www.bethanylutheran.org. Links for both of these are in the show notes. If you would like to support this podcast or the ministry of Bethany Lutheran Church in Long Beach, California, you can text the word GIVE to 562-210-0463. That's GIVE, G-I-V-E, to 562-210-0463. We pray that you have a wonderful and blessed week.